NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Hello, everyone, and greetings from the rainy Northeast. Uh, I'm in anticipation of the flowers of May. Welcome to another edition of The Right Time, a national writing project show bringing children's and young adult authors together with teachers who love teaching their books. It was just over a year ago when my role model and colleague Tanya Baker asked, what would happen if we united our brilliant network with stellar writers? What would we learn? A star wasn't born but the show was. <laughs> Tonight, we have the incredible, the incredible Chris Crutcher with us. And I was just telling a colleague on the phone the other day, sometimes I wish there was a way we could buy salt and pepper shakers full of Chris Crutcher's wisdom, <laughs> simply so we could sprinkle his soul work and brilliance onto er our every day. It's just what we need. He's always written the books that our kids need, and I've always loved teaching them. I have to say, Tanya, I know that you're often starstruck, but I'm extremely starstruck tonight. Um, I'm forever thankful to Dr. Stephen Bickmore um, for introducing us, and um, even more grateful that the repertoire of young adult novels that Chris Crutcher has provided our classrooms continue to serve the needs of teachers everywhere. How are you doing, Tanya? Well, Brian, <laughs> we're interviewing Chris Crutcher. How do you think I am? <laughs> I know you're a super fan, but I feel like we could go to the mat to decide who's the more super fan. Um, it's been a long time since I've been in the classroom, but um, when I first sort of realized that I was sort of in the middle of changing my practice as a teacher and moving from a very traditional high school classroom into a, more of a workshop, Chris's books were some of the first that I found and populated my shelves with. And I'm forever grateful for, on behalf of myself, but also um, all those kids who suddenly saw themselves in books that were in school. And um, I think I will, for my whole life, have a, have a fangirl heart for Chris and especially for Staying Fat for Sarah Burns. So I agree. thank Staying you, Chris. For, <laughs> Staying Fat for Sarah Burns and uh, uh, Angus Bethune have always been two of my favorites in Chinese handcuffs. It gave me the metaphor for life. You know, I'm just, every time I work with kids, I think it is, it's Chinese handcuffs. So anyway, I get to introduce Chris. Chris Crutcher was raised in Cascade, Idaho, a lumber and cattle ranch town located in the central Idaho Rockies. In high school, he played football, basketball, and ran track. Crutcher's years as a teacher then, then a director of a, uh, he was a director of a K-12 alternative school in Oakland, California through the 1970s, and his subsequent 20-odd years as a therapist specializing in child abuse and neglect inform his 13 novels and two collections of short stories. Chris has received a number of American Library, Associate, Library Association's Margaret A. Edwards Lifetime Achievement Award. And I have tongue uh, marbles in my mouth as I'm reading this because I'm <laughs> nervous all of a sudden. His favorites are his two intellectual freedom awards, one from the National Council for Teachers of English and the other from the National Coalition Against Censorship. Five of Crutcher's books appeared on an American Library Association list of the 100 best books for teens of the 20th century from 1990 to 2000. On another note, those of us who follow Chris Crutcher on Facebook have received therapeutic interludes of wisdom and humor over the last year as he, like all of us, processed the insanity of our nation. His writing was sharp, poignant, and whimsically necessary at times, and I'm very thankful for him for writing those. Tanya. It's my, oops. It's my pleasure to introduce 
our teacher interviewer tonight, Stephanie Erickson. Stephanie is a national board certified teacher, a teacher consultant with the Ohio Writing Project and a past president of the Ohio Council of Teachers of English slash language arts. <laughs> It's a really a mouthful. It For is. over 22 <laughs> years, Stephanie has taught readers and writers in Blanchester, Ohio. She started, started her career teaching seventh and eighth grade and currently teaches sophomores, juniors, and seniors. Stephanie loves working with teenagers because they give her hope. In addition to teaching, Stephanie enjoys home improvement projects, reading while cuddling with her beagle Hank and her border collie Lucy, and traveling with her 12-year-old son Sebastian and her husband Marcus. It's my pleasure to welcome you, Stephanie, and to turn the show over to you. I think you'll give us a writing prompt that people could pause to have a go at before the interview if they choose. Okay, well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here, and it's a tremendous honor to interview Chris. I think I might be having a little bit of an out-of-body experience at the moment, so deep breath. Um, <laughs> I thought we'd start um, by writing about tough stuff because that's what Chris's books are about. Mm. Um, and I'm borrowing a prompt from Ralph Fletcher from when he talked with us at the Ohio Writing Project in 2019. It was simply what we don't talk about. So I thought there are several ways we could approach this. One way might be to write about some things that are difficult to talk about. Maybe write a list of those things or maybe make a list of topics that you avoid with particular people or particular groups of people, or maybe um, think about and write about a difficult conversation you need to have. So pause the video for a few minutes and write. Yeah, you go right to the gut. <laughs> exactly. We wish you the best conversation. Just pretend, like we said, you're sitting in first class just by <laughs> chance on, the on an airplane when we used to fly. And you're like, oh, I'm a writer. Oh, I happen to be a teacher and let it go. We'll see you in a little while. All right. Hey, Chris. Hey, how are you? I'm a little, I'm a little bit nervous. I have to tell Ralph that you used his prompt. I, I, Ralph and I go back and forth almost daily. So, oh, you do? Yeah, I, I, I've, I've, I've known him for a long, long time. He's a, he's a real prince. And I don't know if that was in a book. I kept thinking I read it somewhere, but I think it was one he just gave us when we were talking about writing about the truth and writing about our lives and yeah. how do we do that? Um, so that was my first, that's my first question for you. Um, and I have to say that I was telling my kids that I was gonna interview you. And one of my senior boys in my AP Lit class said, the best books I have read in high school have been Chris Crutcher's books. If you haven't read Chris Crutcher's books, you have to. And his favorite is of course, King of the Mild Frontier. Um, <laughs> the little how-to book, right? Yeah, he says it's just so funny. Um, so thinking about truth telling and, and writing about the tough stuff, um, your books confront so many of the issues that teens face, they confront issues that adults face. Um, and I love in Loser's Bracket when Sharon, the librarian who's running the book club for kids says to Annie Books, so you like books, or Annie Boots, I called her Annie Books. So you like books and Annie says, I do a lot. They tell the truth, at least the characters do. And that's a thread that runs through all of your books. Um, and in our pre-chat there, you were talking about writing and, and kids writing and telling their secrets. It is so easy to say, just tell the truth in your writing, just write about your life and write honestly. And yet that's really, really scary and really hard to do. So 
What are your thoughts about telling the truth in our writing? And what advice do you have for writers and teachers for helping kids and us write? I, you know, I love that. I love that starting place because um, when I started working, well, even back when I worked in the alternative school down in Oakland through the 70s, every kid in the school had been thrown out of public school and they all had stories. And they were, I was totally out of my element in that, in that time. I was, you know, I, I grew up in a logging town that was pretty white. Mm -hmm. And you, you don't, when you grow up in a situation, in, in that kind of isolation, because it's not only just a logging town up in the mountains in Idaho, I didn't see television until I was in like the fifth grade. And, and I probably didn't see an African-American human being until I was 11 or 12 years old, but I heard the N-word every day. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize what you're growing up in until you get far enough away from it to take a look. And it was a it was a pretty steep learning curve for me because I'm I'm a '60s guy. I was in the early '60s is my high school, and the late '60s is my is my college time. And that is you know that's that's upheaval a lot like we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. was killed when I was a junior in high school. You know, John Kennedy, President Kennedy was killed when I was a senior in high school. So all of that. Uh, and Tommy Smith and John Carlos were raising their fists from the top of the Olympic podium in 1968 mm -hmm. to protest the same things that were being that were protesting now. What that did to me is that number one, it left me in huge embarrassment for not, for just being behind the curve all the, all the way around and not knowing how to approach it all. I mean, I I knew what I thought was fair and what wasn't fair, but you know, to turn that into, into any kind of an action or any kind of conversation that you're going to have with anybody isn't always easy to do. Then I started working with kids that were, then I started working with teenagers, particularly teenagers and adults who involved in child abuse and neglect and working with a wonderful play therapist that worked with little kids. And secrets were killing these kids and secrets were killing their parents and secrets had killed their parents when they were kids. And you could see that, that, you know, rolling down that, that awfulness, rolling down the pipe. And um, I, 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 somewhere, somewhere out there, I, it occurred to me that um, no kid is going to go to school and talk about their life in the middle class. You just don't, I mean, you'd be crazy to do that. I don't, you know, you don't know who you trust and who you can't trust. But if there are stories out there that, that where characters have some of the same things that are going on in your life and they have the same senses of grief and they have the same senses of, God, I wish I hadn't done that. You know, I wish I could fix what I just did. All of those, those you know, those pieces of, of just real natural humanity um, are a lot easier to talk about if you're talking about a character if you're in, instead of having to talk about your own life. And... So that was that was that was kind of the thing that got me that got me talking about those secrets because for for one thing when I when I took a job when I took a job working in an alternative school when I took a job as a therapist um, you know when you're young and just naive as you can get you think you're I'm here to help and then you you do it for a little while and you realize I'm not anywhere near smart enough to help the only thing I can do is walk with you long enough that we can find something that we both recognize that I can basically give you a, a place to stand, you know, mm -hmm. 
but I have to get my own, I have to get my own stuff out of the way. I have to get my own ideas about what's okay and what isn't okay. I got to get my own morality out of the way because the, the history that you bring to this connection is way more important than what I bring. And so I learned that and totally coincidentally, that, fit, that it fit into my writing. I started to think, you know, I don't have any lessons to teach anybody. I'm not smart enough to teach anybody any lessons. But if I can listen long enough and put things together in a way that makes them understandable and tell, it, tell those small key truths of, of kids' lives and then throw as much humor into that as I can because there's a balance of comedy and tragedy that you have to have to keep, number one, to keep writing, but to also keep people reading. You know, there was this, this combination fell together. And I feel tremendously blessed to have just run into those two things at the, at the time that I was I was learning how to be a therapist and I was learning how to be a writer mm -hmm. and I was coming to both from uh, from very 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 little experience so one thing you just talked about that I, I was I've been thinking about in rereading your books um, is that common thread of humanity and how what, when you said you, know, you think about kids saying, I wish I hadn't done that. Um, I'm also thinking about how revealing your characters are in their books um, for kids to make those connections. And um, you were also talking about growing up in some isolation and how that affected your perspectives in the world. I teach in a very rural area. Um, and so another thing that your books do in, re in characters revealing themselves and in thinking about um, how you build your characters too, is that you often challenge preconceived notions. I think Mark Britton and Sarah Burns, once you get to know his story and we understand him, you're, we're challenging what that outward um, persona is even on a character. And um, I think of TJ's dad in Whale Talk, um, you know, challenging what he looks like versus who he who he truly is. So what place do you think that story has in challenging our biases as readers of texts and as writers when we're maybe developing characters or working through some of these things in our own lives and our writing? You know, I think for readers, one of the, one of the things that, that I learned, I, <laughs> I, found mo I found most of my brother's old book reports early on in my high school career. And so just, I was I just reading that story today. And <laughs> I, be, I, became, I became one of the all-time, I, I think I was the first like serious recycler. And uh, and I, I was I was ADHD. I mean, I still am. And I, I, I came out thinking I was not very smart because it was really, really hard for me to concentrate. But what I discovered about that condition was yeah, you're, it's really hard to concentrate when you're not interested, but when you really are interested, you just can, mm. you can lose yourself in it. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I had, a, I had a really good English teacher, but she was absolutely married to old dead white authors, guys. Mm. And so they're no, you know, I'm sorry, but those guys don't speak the same language I do. But To Kill a Mockingbird came out. I was, it, was, it came out in 60, I think, and I read it in 61. And I read... Scout, Scout was like my friend. I mean, there was an intimacy that I felt reading Scout. And much later when I sat down to start writing, 
I thought, I thought the reason that that intimacy was available to me was because Harper Lee was willing to tell it all. Because mm -hmm. and, and that the whole thing with first person narrative is you don't just hear what I say out loud, you hear what I think. So the embarrassing, the secrets are there. And, and so most, most readers, most anybody, when they, when they find a book that they really like, that, that honesty is, is, is a magnet. It's like, here's a person, I, what it felt to me like was that here's a person that's willing to tell me everything. And it almost feels like I will tell you, but I won't tell anyone else. And then you look on the back of the book and there's like 8 jillion copies sold. So, you know, she's cheating on you But while you're reading the book. It's just you and her. And so I, I when I started to write, I thought, OK, I, this scares me. What you said is, is so true. It's terrifying to try to tell your truth. One of the things that I realized that I like I would write the story. And I remember the first one and I sent it in and I thought all of a sudden people who don't know me or anything about me, I'm revealing what I think is important. And the first scary part is it's, they're going to think it's stupid, you know, that it's not important at all. And you have, you know, what did you send this here? But the other, even then, the, the other part of that is if you read very many of my books, you, you pretty much know me. I mean, it's all, it's all there because you know, the important thing I think about a story like any of the stories that I've written, and there are a bunch of really great ones out there, other people's written, is that they're disturbing because they go against the stereotype. They go against mm -hmm. that. They go against the easy, uh, you know, the easy answers that we tend to want. You know, we want our, we want our kids not to feel bad. We want our kids not to fail. We want a whole bunch of things that just aren't going to happen. And being disturbed by reading a book, I think is a great thing. A book that doesn't disturb me, unless it's just really funny. A book that doesn't disturb me is not a book I'm going to finish. I, I I love to be challenged, and I love to I love, and I love to have conversations about you know people who read my books and see, you know, see something different. So when I talk about when I talk about it from the point of writing, one of the things that I say is while you're writing it, just remember you don't have to show it to anybody. Tell it all. You can. There's a delete button, but get it all out. Get it all out in front of you, and then and then sit with it and see what you're. See how much truth you're willing to tell. Mm. And it's like I said, my, boy. My first stories. Number one, I thought I was smarter than I was, but my first stories scared me because I thought these are things I didn't tell my best friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like I would always. You, you you know you try to you put yourself in the best in the best light you can put yourself in but when you're telling that story it's not going to be real unless you unless you ache if you, unless you strip off some skin so um go ahead and, and the good thing you write it by yourself you write it alone you don't have to show it to anybody mm -hmm. you will if you love it you but you got to take the chance so it's it like it's it's a, yes, it's disturbing to read it, but it's every bit as disturbing to write it. Yeah, but those are the things I think too that make us uh, those vulnerabilities. I think people are drawn to that, and I think that's why we're drawn to literature and character and and trying to understand ourselves in this crazy world that we're living in. Um, oh yeah, I guess yeah, crazy. Yeah, and that 
that brings me to my next question. You, I don't know exactly how you said it, but you said something about looking for neat answers and the world's not black and white and your characters are always dealing with something complex personally, but it also seems like outside of their personal struggle, there are complicated things going on in the community around them and their schools with their friends, family. And um, I think about this a lot and my friend makes fun of me or because every time where she's frustrated with somebody or something, I say, remember people are complicated. And I think right. people have always been complicated. And especially right now, it seems like we're at a point that people don't want to consider the complexity of situations. It's, they want it to be simple and it is not. So it makes me wonder about your writing process. Do you start with a complex situation um, or a, an issue in the world or do you start with character? How do you build that story in that way and examine all this stuff? It's always easier if you have an event because then, I, you know, Robert Cormier used to say that the mantra of the fiction writer is what if, what if, what if. And the answer to what if is your story. And, and if, you have, if you have the event, then it, it's much easier to say, okay, what if I put this character in this position? Or what if I... And so a lot of times, a lot of times a, a story will be, uh, will inspire me. Something happens out in the real world that I'm, astonishes me or you know, really, really grabs my attention. And there's a, there's a wonderful feeling being a fiction writer and say, I can do anything I want with that as long as I can make it. I don't have to make anybody believe it happened. I just have to make them believe it could have. Mm. And so if I, if I can do that, then I, it's easier to look around and find, I know lots of interesting characters, so I can start throwing them in. And you know, somebody in there is going to be some variation of me, some you know, smart alecky look at things or whatever it is. So what I do is I, I start with almost nothing. I'll start with, a, with an event, hopefully, or, or a, a problem in deadline. I give the kid a year to live. Mm -hmm. And then I, okay, you, you've got one whole, you've got this many pages to make a footprint, but you don't get to get smart and get old and stuff like that to make your footprint. You gotta make it before the end of your senior year. And, um, and then I just, then I flail around. One of the things that I, when I first started writing, once they started saying, you know, that they would give me an advance for a book just by saying I was going to write it, I wouldn't take the advance early on until I knew the ending. Because if I didn't know the ending, I was just, I'm trying stuff. And, and a lot of the stuff that you try doesn't work. So then I hit the ending like about chapter eight or chapter nine with a 20 chapter book. And there's a lot of editing in to do on those first chapters because I have stuff in there that just isn't. That but after that, writing toward that ending, it's like, you know, Kurt Vonnegut said, anything that doesn't take you toward your ending and doesn't characterize your character, you know, show your characters, dump it. And that's a real, that's a real, uh, I think it's a smart way for me to, for me to follow the process. So in the beginning, it's, a lot of clay <laughs> and then you start sculpting and pretty soon you get to the middle of the book and all of a sudden it takes off and so there's an editing process to do in those first chapters to make sure that you are you know it's all going in that in that direction once in a while a character would be so interesting to me 
but even even with that, it will be because that character's backstory is so is so complex and has has you know brought them to this certain place. So I'll have the character and I'll have that the character will be a lot more a lot more developed in my mind. It's a harder thing to do for me because um, it's I, it's I find it much easier to you know conjure up a character than I do to conjure up a a real situation. So most of my situations come from the real world. I, 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 I cheat. <laughs> I rip off the real world from my plots. So speaking of the real world and, and real people too, um, there's always a mentor character or sometimes there's a couple of mentors. Um, and the thing that strikes me is they not always, but often do things, I don't want to spoil anything in loser's bracket or, but they bend rules in ways that we just sometimes can't to save our kids. Um, we were, I was talking with my friend about that today. You know, we couldn't do those things. We want to do those things. We couldn't do those things, but are there real people who are inspirations for those care, those mentor characters and how much well, of it do you, I, I see you in those characters. <laughs> there are, there are, and I have broken I have broken a lot of rules when I, when I was when I was a therapist. I ran the child protection team for thirty some years here in Spokane, and it's a it's a group of volunteers who just who who come together and hear some of the toughest child abuse cases and make recommendations where mm -hmm. to go, and and um, and I was the chairperson of that that thing for thirty some years, and you know that every. The rules are there for a reason, but some of those rules are so dangerous mm. to, the, to the people involved that you, I mean, I've done it a few times where I just say, I, you know, I'm going to take a chance. So this would cost me, but it'll, it'll, it'll cost me a lot more psychologically if I, you know, if I don't go do that right thing. So, and I, I got in trouble for a time or two, but um, number one, so a lot of the things that you can't do as an educator now, you could do back in the 70s. No right. one was paying any attention in the 70s and early, you know, it's like you get away with a whole bunch of things. You just didn't, you just stayed below radar and that you couldn't get away with those things now. But there are times when, there are times when you, you look at a, a situation and you just think, if, if I follow protocol here, I'm safe, but this kid is hanging out. I can't do that. And I've had, I really have had times. I've had times, I, re, I remember we were, I used to do, I used to do, uh, because I was a chairperson of the child protection team, there was a time when if a child, if a child was killed, in while they were ward of the state, there had to be a panel that got together and did a death review on that. And so I ended up doing a lot of those, chairing a lot of those death reviews, god awful stories. Yeah. yeah. But we're we we started one day and we got gotten these people together. And one of the guys on the team just kept saying, um, how do we keep from getting sued? How do we, you know, are we are we covered? Are we covered? Are we covered? And he said it about five times. And I said, I said, man, if and he had every right to be worried about it. But I just said, man, if you don't, if, if that's what you're going to worry about, get out of here. <laughs> you know, we can't, we cannot afford 
to get to get handcuffed by a, a protocol that's gonna that's gonna not let us come out with the right answer to you know because what we're trying to do is figure out how to make sure that a, this doesn't happen to another kid. So though that guy I've infused into a lot of teaching characters and a lot of mentor characters, a lot of I mean certainly TJ's dad and whale talk. Mm-hmm. Lemory when she takes off with Sarah Burns, are you kidding me? But, right. But yeah. I mean it's it's like this could cost me, but if I don't do this, and and one of the things about one of the things about Sarah Burns about that story was, and this was one of those writing writing things that I had to just decide, decide, and decide about. When I had her mom leave, I didn't know what I was gonna, I didn't know whether I'd have her come back or not. But mm-hmm. one of the things that used to just take, just scoop my insides out was when a mom would get with a bad boyfriend or was bad, whatever it was, and they'd be brutal and all this, and she'd leave or she'd, or she'd just bail on the kid. And you, but it really happened. It yeah. happened. And when it did, it was such an astonishing thing that it became it became part of the heart and soul of that story because you know it'd be great if she left and then she comes back and makes everything okay but that doesn't happen all the time and and the the part of that story that's so disturbing is as much as anything else is that mom and somebody else has to step in because she's not coming back she's and those are things those are things that that happens often enough in the real world and people don't want to pay very much attention to them. When I was, when I was a, a therapist and when I was doing the child protection team, I'd get invited, invited to the Rotary Club to talk about it, downtown, you know, people, you know, the, the civic, all kinds of civic uh, organizations. Boy, they, you know, they're, oh man, it's really good that, you know, somebody's out there doing this. They didn't want to touch it. They didn't, they didn't want to hear this, the, the way this story is ended sometimes. And I'm sitting there saying, if, if we don't know how to, if, if you don't know what, what this is, we're not going to fix it. Because it, it's not going to get fixed by social workers. They're going to do their best. But they, everybody's got to get, get, get on board. Yeah, and our yeah. kids are, we have the kids. I mean, those are the kids in our classrooms too. Oh, and, and those are their stories. And those are their stories. And I, I've said a thousand times as a therapist, I, 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 I taught in the, the alternative school and then I started working as a therapist and we were working 12 hours a day sometimes hearing some of the most powerful stories you can think of. And I always thought this is a tough job. It is nowhere near as tough as being a teacher mm-hmm. because when you're a teacher, you know, those kids are in that room, but you don't necessarily know who they are. You just know they're there. Mm-hmm. And some really bad stuff has to happen to you to get to see a therapist. Everybody sees a teacher. Mm-hmm. And the teacher is in this place saying, I need to make, I need to make this place safe for everybody. And you still have to know what content when you leave. Yes. You know, you leave my office, you don't have to know how to do long division. <laughs> you know, we, we can, we can work on your problem, but we both know what we're working on. And there's, you know, once, once there's a therapeutic connection, then, then we're, we're, we're on the same page. Teachers don't have that. Mm-hmm. And there, and you're, you're, you're always, you're always, um, you're always entrusted with 
being able to do it, whether you you know whether you know it or not, it's yeah. it's it is it is rice paper you walk on. And it's so important to to constantly be thinking about how we offer them the opportunity to share their stories and share yes. their voices with us. And I think approach every kid, considering there's a story there that we don't know. Right. Um, I think that's crucial in our in our position, and especially in the language arts classroom when we are writing and we're working with stories that um, I, I do think we have a we're very fortunate to have the jobs that we have to work with kids in the way that we do. And I know that we don't know always how we're affecting their lives, but hopefully we are in positive. But also, I, see, this is the other part of it for in, in my mind is that the connection you make is as much education for both you and them. It's, it's yeah. as much as their education as, as the content. Yes. And, and we need to get administrators and people who, you know, who, who make the rules to understand that that's every bit as much, you know, to, to, to make, to make a kid, to get a kid to a place where they can, where they can accept an education, they have to feel safe enough to accept it. Absolutely. And, and there's a lot about an education that's disturbing, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I wrote Chinese handcuffs, I, I wrote that story because a girl that I had in my, in my, on my caseload said, you got to write this story. And I said, I can't, I don't know it. Well, I believe it, but I don't know it. Mm -hmm. And she just badgered me. She says, she says, I guess you didn't hear me. And so, and she ended up, she said, oh, she said, I'm a really good reader. And she was, she was smart. And she said, that makes me a good editor. I'll read it. And it took me twice as long to write Chinese handcuffs because she read every chapter because I said, you can't let me make a mistake here. I can't put this out and have it not be true. And I got, I got hammered for it in a lot of places, but I got lauded for it in a lot of places. And a girl in Texas walked up to me after, after everybody cleared away. She was 17 years old. She was getting ready to graduate. She said, I read Chinese handcuffs and I thought you knew me. Oh, wow. And, and I thought, the first thing I thought was, number one, basically, to hell with anybody who wants to give me a hard time for writing that story. Mm -hmm. And if you really want to give me a hard time for writing that story, I'll introduce you to the girl that made me write it. But, but what happened when she said, I mean, she said it, and she said, I've never, she's standing in front of me. She's 17 years old. She's three months away from graduation. And she said, I've never told anybody this before. She wouldn't tell me her name because she knew I was a mandatory reporter. And we're, so we talk about it a little bit and I try to give her a little, you know, you can go play, help places. She says, what am I supposed to do now? She said, you're a therapist and I could be a client, but you live in Washington and I live in Texas. And she had, she had said, when I read it, I felt, I felt relief because I, <laughs> she said, if some old guy in Washington knows it, there have to be other people too. And so I, I said, who gave you the book? And she said, my English teacher. And I said, well, did she give it to everybody? Or did she just give it to you? And she said, I think she just gave it to me. And I said, I go with my English teacher. And it was back before email, but that summer, she had graduated and turned 18. That summer in like late July, I get two letters within a week, one from the English teacher and one from the girl. And they're, she doesn't have, she's 18, so she doesn't have to worry about child protection services anymore. And they've gone for help. Now, I don't know how it ends. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of good things have to happen. But I'm just a conduit of that story, right? I'm, I'm, I'm letting this girl tell me how to get it right. And this girl picks it up. 
And, and that English teacher knew to give that girl the book, I would bet anything on it. She knew yes. Exactly. Yeah. Because we know our kids. Because <laughs> you know your kids know better than anybody. Yeah. yeah. So I have one more question for you about um, YA Lit today. And in, in the chat we were having before we started recording, um, Tanya and Brian were talking about you and Laurie Hall Sanderson, and I think of Walter Dean Myers as being really the beginning of the genre we know today as YA Lit. I graduated from high school in 1993. I think that's the year that Sarah Burns was published. So, but I didn't have these books when I was in middle school and, and high school. Um, I'm so glad that I've had them for over 22 years for my kids. But when you think about this moment in America, what role, um, I guess I should ask, how has YA Lit evolved since you started writing? And what do you see as the role of YA Lit in this moment right now for our kids? You know, it evolved when, when, I, when I started writing it, it, it was kind of the redheaded stepchild of real literature. And I mean, nobody knew where to even put it in a bookstore or a library or, they, you know, it just worked. And it, it started to gain, it started to gain, I think, some heft. And, and Judy Bloom had, had put some great stuff out there, Robert Cormier. Um, and, and, and then Walter, you know, Walter just elevated the, the whole thing, Walter Dean Myers. Um, one of the things that I noticed when I was writing was that like every book I wrote got banned someplace, but it was always, it was always, it was always, um, it was always banned by the political or religious right. And it was mm -hmm. basically people who believe that we needed to keep ideas out of kids' heads because they're limiting or something and you know i i was always a believer that you you can't keep ideas out of kids heads uh, the, the one place safe place we all have is inside the, the, the brain and then it, it got to the place I, I i felt so lucky to hear some really good young young adult writers saying you 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 i read your books and it gave me permission to talk about some really hard stuff and I thought that I, I, I mean, if that's a, a, a legacy that I really like. Then the political correctness started was coming in, and um, and this idea about who can write what, and use of language, and all those things started coming in from the left. And and what the left needed, in my mind, needed to understand was that freedom freedom of ideas you know the first amendment the, the whole thing is a big deal my dad used to tell me my dad was a bomber pilot i mean you know he he was by the time i was the same age i was when i graduated from college he had flown 35 missions over germany in a b-17 mm -hmm. patriot mm -hmm. and he was a conservative patriot by his by his own standard and he would have run a nail through his eye before he let a book get banned he thought it bought a he thought he bought a war for that so that was my, I, I was hardwired for that. But the one thing he always said is, you know, it's real easy to stand up for stuff you like. You gotta stand up for stuff you hate because these ideas, they are ideas. I mean, you don't have to stand up for hate speech and you don't have to stand up, I mean, you know, you can't yell fire in a, in a crowded theater. 
but the truth and pe the people's ideas are their truths and they, they need to be able to get out there. And there's recently been a, a I, something that I thought was fairly scary because um, editors started warning people about getting, about getting uh, killed on Twitter because they, you know, because they created a character that they, didn't, that they shouldn't know about, or they shouldn't, you know, they didn't, maybe they didn't get it right, or they shouldn't have been able to get it right, maybe they did. And that, that, start, that bothers me, because all of a sudden, um, we, we lose the heart and soul of putting ideas out and finding some way to deal with those, to talk about, to talk about those ideas. I mean, I, you know, when I have a, when I have a, strong opinion i think i'm right but i'm not necessarily and you know the other side you know a, a reasonable conversation coming out about any of those things i think is really important so on the one hand i think it's i think that that part of it bothers me but when you look at some of the i, I just finished reading um the book that uh jason reynolds did with did with um god i forget it's called Stamped. Stamped William or Ibram X. Kendi. Yes, and every everybody should have to read that book. I mean, he just he Great. just flat comes out and says it. He mm -hmm. says it with humor. He says it with poignancy. He just you can't. It's almost unimpeachable. And I look at that and I think you know there are a bunch of. I mean, I'm you know I'm I'm getting along in the tooth. There are a bunch of really really good writers out there that understand how absolutely important those years of adolescence are. I mean, this is the first time where human beings step out and, and start practicing being an adult and, and, you know, deciding who they should be, you know, who they should listen to and who they should be with and what they want to do and, and what their moral sense might be. And the more ideas that are, I mean, you want to get as many ideas out there as you can so they can choose. And there's so much more available now, like than there was, you know, I, I had, I had TV, I had two channels, you know, the remote was a stick, <laughs> you just poke the other channel, and information is coming in on these people, and the expectations are coming in, and this pandemic, for crying out loud, these kids, they're stepping out, they, 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 as teenagers, they have, they have, they have experienced something that none of us have ever experienced. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 75 years old. Nothing like this has ever happened. And, all, and, and I got it easy because I'm, you know, I don't have to do anything with it. They're going out, having been isolated and having had to think about their friends and, the, and missing their friends and connections and what school and learning and ideas are all about and being, and being kind of sequestered from them. God, these kids can come out explosive. I mean, they can come out explosive. I went down to I went down to Snowman Douglas not very long after the shooting down there and talked to those kids, and boy, they are those kids are ready. They are out there and they're out there now, and so there, there there's so much going on. And I I think there are more people, more writers. And this is the kind of answer you get from an ADD person. There are more writers long, and there are more writers out there who absolutely understand the importance of, of that time of, of adolescence and have stunning skills to lay those stories out so the kids can take a look at it. I mean, they're, they're just, you can't read enough. 
Yeah, Chris, I, I, we're back in. We said we were going to come back in at the end of the show, and it's hard to make make this show end because it's been such a delight to listen to from the outside. Um, but I actually pulled this book off my shelf, Contending with Gun Violence in the English Language Classroom, that was edited by Schaefer, Rumer, Boscul, and Vic Moore. Your opening chapter there in that book is called It's the Guns, and I'm sure that your work with Stoneman Douglas had something to do with some of your thinking. It is some of the sharpest, most point, poignant nonfiction writing. You know, you read it and you're like, this is teachable. Like, this is something that every lawmaker should have to read because it's the guns, right? Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about the connection between the two of you and how well-suited you were for one another. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, go to the English teacher. And when I first started out, I was an intern at a high school thinking about being an English teacher. And I walked up to the third floor and I heard a gunshot and a young woman had taken her life in the bathroom and I'm the one who ran in to see what was going on and I didn't know what was going on. But then I got the security guard, all that stuff. And you know, it's one of those things that kind of triggers you for life. And I remember that a teacher that was at the school, she had the kids write and they kept writing and editing and they put together this little memory book of their friend who had taken her life. And I remember coming in one day and that teacher was gone. And I was like, where'd she go? And they're like, she's on leave for a while. Administration didn't think her reaction to the suicide was a, was a good one. And it wasn't good for the school or the kids and the morale. And I just, I, and that was, I was 19 years old. And I remember saying, if there's anything I'm gonna fight <laughs> as an educator, <laughs> it's the complete inaneness of a reaction like that. Yeah. Like the soul workers in the schools, the ones who are there for the kids are the ones you're gonna punish. But you know, through your books and you know, through life experience and visiting schools, they're the first ones to punish the ones that are doing their job, that are helping the world to heal. It's something. And I'll tell you, it's been coming down, uh, you know, I mean, it goes back before No Child Left Behind, but it's been, it, it certainly was highlighted by that, that the teachers were in the eye of the hurricane all the time because mm -hmm. the blame, it, it comes down from the top, it comes up from the bottom. It's like, you're the person that's, you're on the front line mm -hmm. and, and, and you're, you're, you're getting subjected to people's ideas that are not very good ideas. The idea that we shouldn't talk about, you name it, <laughs> blank, is yeah. a bad idea. There's nothing we shouldn't. There's nothing we shouldn't talk about. We should because right. the, the monster in the closet is a lot scarier than the monster outside, where you can see where he is. I mean, it just is so so, so true. That's um, a great place. Uh, first of all, a bottom line truth, and secondly, a great place for us to transition to Stephanie's closing writing prompt, I think. So I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen so people can see it. Okay, so I think it makes sense to end here. Um, I mentioned Loser's Bracket at the beginning and there's a book club and it's also a writing club in the book. And Sharon's a librarian who facilitates this club. And there's a student, I think it's Seth who um, doesn't really see the purpose of writing. And Sharon talks about writing from life. And she says, nobody's gonna make you tell your story. But if you listen, you might understand why the rest of us will. See, life happens as much in the imagination as it does out there where there's earth, wind, and fire. How we understand story can be a blueprint for understanding our lives. So I think it makes sense to go back to our opening writing. And if you made a list or you started writing something, um, take something that's nonfiction and maybe try to turn it into fiction. 
you could write the truth, which we talked about being really hard to do. But as Chris was talking about his writing, it's scary and it's really important and you don't have to share it. Um, you might examine that topic through poetry or metaphor. You could adopt the voice of a character to tell this story. Or I think it might be really interesting if it's that tough conversation we need to have or if it's the people that we avoid talking with that maybe we change the perspective and try to write from that pers perspective that opposes our own. So go ahead and write. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Uh, and, and thank you for having her. This was wonderful. <laughs> and thank you guys are great. I, I texted Tanya during and I was like, wow, how is it that we always seem to find the perfect match? Because she's, you know, it was, it was like I kept you bounced off each other really well. And I was like, this is going to be so usable by writers and teachers and administrators, should they want to have these conversations in their classroom. It was a really positive, effective, um, heartwarming talk. And yeah. you, you want to tell teachers when if you get when when you have connections with people in the writing project or teachers that just you could you you were saying, I wonder if we can get Chris Crutcher. They can all get me. If they want me to zoom in their classroom, I'll go. I'll zoom in their classroom. I I believe teachers are the warriors of this time, mm. and you know if I can if I if I can be, you know the guy that brings the sandwiches, I'll bring the sandwiches. <laughs> I, I I think if you're gonna if you're gonna pay back, education is the place to pay back in my mind. That's so lovely and. You said it um, while we're still recording. So there you have it. <laughs> uh -oh. If you are inundated with teachers. I, I don't, I'll do it. I, it's, <laughs> I, it gives me great connection. We, um, we're so glad, Stephanie and Chris, that you were here today. This was a beautiful show. And it's always my job at the end to also say to the listening and viewing audience, we're also so glad that you're here and we want to see you again. So Follow us on Twitter at National Writing Project or Instagram. Uh, join our Facebook community of educators um, or go to nwp.org and sign up for our newsletter so you never miss a right time conversation. You wouldn't have wanted to miss this amazing talk between Stephanie and Chris. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. W. Radio.